do that for? So I can kill him. Shh, it's the film flavors. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's time for another deep dive. Uh, Last week we talked about Halloween from 1978. And just consider it to be 40 years later because today we're talking about Halloween 2018. Halloween is a 2018 American slasher film directed by David Gordon Green, who co-wrote the screenplay with Danny McBride and Jeff Fraidley. It is the 11th film in the Halloween franchise, but it's meant to be a direct sequel to Carpenter's original 1978 version that we covered last week, creating a retroactive continuity and canceling out all of the other sequels. The plot follows a post-traumatic Laurie Strode who prepares to confront Michael Myers 40 years after she survived his original attack. Jamie Lee Curtis and Nick Castle both reprised their roles of Laurie Strode and Michael Myers, respectively, although James Jude Courtney played Michael for a majority of the film. The film also stars Judy Greer and Andy Matichak as Laurie's daughter and granddaughter, creating a multi-generational fight against the shape. When Blumhouse acquired the rights to the franchise, Green and McBride, both fans of the films, pitched their idea, and with Carpenter's blessing, the film was greenlit. This movie marked the first involvement by Carpenter in this series since the release of Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. It's believed by many to be the best of the sequels, with many critics praising Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. The music for the film was composed and recorded by none other than John Carpenter, along with he and Adrian Barbeau's son Cody Carpenter and his godson Daniel Davies. All right, listeners, there's a reason we're supposed to be afraid on this night. This is Halloween 2018. 2018. 2018. 2018. <laughs> Testing one, two, three. We're on. We're here to investigate a patient that killed three innocent teenagers on Halloween in 1978. He was shot by his own psychiatrist and taken into custody that night. And has spent the last 40 years in captivity. Hello, Michael. I have something you might like to see. Everyone in my family like turns into a nutcase this time of year. Yeah, I mean, your grandmother is Lori Strode. She was almost murdered. Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No, it was not her brother. That's something that people made up. Do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? What the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. Dad, look out! The bus crashed. Mom, what bus crashed? Michael escaped. Excuse me, somebody's in here. Hello? for this night. He's waited for me. I've waited for him. Get out! 
On October 29th, 2018, Michael Myers, played by Nick Castle, who has been institutionalized at Smith's Grove Psychiatric Hospital for 40 years following his killing spree in Haddonfield, is being prepared for transfer to a maximum security prison. True crime podcasters Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes visit the hospital and, during their encounter, Aaron displays the mask that Michael wore in 1978 to him, to seemingly no effect. The following day, as he's being transferred, Michael purposefully crashes the bus full of other inmates, kills a father and son for their car, and returns to Haddonfield. In Haddonfield, Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is still living in fear of Michael. She's drinking heavily, rarely leaving her fortified house, and alienating herself from her daughter Karen, played by Judy Greer, whom the state took away from her at age 12. The only person she keeps in contact with is Karen's daughter, and therefore Laurie's granddaughter, Allison, played by Andy Matichak. On the morning of October 31st, Halloween, Michael sees the podcasters, the lowest form of life. Aaron and Dana visiting his sister Judith's grave. He follows them to a gas station where he brutally kills them both, as well as a mechanic for his coveralls, before recovering his old mask from Aaron's car. Deputy Frank Hawkins, who arrested Michael in 1978, tries to convince Sheriff Barker about Michael's danger after learning that he escaped. Lori also learns of Michael's escape and attempts to warn her daughter Karen, but Karen dismisses her concerns, urging Lori to move on with her life. Later that night, Allison finds her boyfriend Cameron cheating on her at the high school costume party and leaves with her friend Oscar. Meanwhile, while babysitting a boy named Julian, Allison's best friend Vicky and her boyfriend Dave are attacked by Michael. Vicky sacrifices herself to protect Julian after Michael comes out of the closet armed with wire hangers, having learned his lesson 40 years ago. Deputy Hawkins and Lori overhear the incident on the radio and go over to the house to see what's poppin'. <laughs> from the street, Lori sees Michael in the upstairs window, coming face to face with him for the first time in 40 years. Finally reunited, Lori shoots Michael in the shoulder before he disappears, presumably into someone else's closet. <laughs> Dr. Satan, excuse me, Sartain. Michael's psychiatrist, who survived the bus crash, persuades Sheriff Baker to help him in the hunt for Michael. Meanwhile, on the walk home from the party, Michael finds and penetrates Oscar on a fence after he was abruptly friend-zoned by Allison. Michael goes after Allison, but Hawkins and Dr. Sartain arrive just in time to rescue her. Hawkins then tries to kill Michael, but Dr. Sartain, who has become obsessed with Michael's enigmatic motivations, inexplicably attacks and leaves Hawkins for dead. It is revealed that he has orchestrated Michael's escape to study him in the wild. However, Michael kills Sartain for his trouble, and Allison flees into a dark and spooky forest. 
Michael then ambushes and kills two police officers who came to see what was popping. <laughs> They're like having the best first date ever, though, too. I love that. She's like, I got you a sandwich. And I'm like, oh, my God, couple goals. <laughs> Michael drives the dead officer's car to Lori's house, where she and Karen are preparing for war. When Lori's son-in-law, Ray, goes outside to greet who he believes are the two officers, Michael strangles him to death. Lori manages to get Karen to safety before she engages in a showdown with Michael. Lori severely injures Michael, but he stabs her in the abdomen and pushes her over a balcony. But when Michael goes to check Lori's body, he finds it missing. He sings, isn't it ironic to himself, before moving on. <laughs> and I really do think. Allison arrives and calls out for her grandmother, luring Michael out from a closet somewhere in the house. <laughs> Allowing Karen to shoot him. Lori suddenly reappears and attacks Michael from behind, but with Karen and Allison's help, they trap him inside a basement safe room. The house was a trap, pre-rigged to burn at Lori's command. The trio sets the house ablaze, and Lori says a final goodbye to Michael. As the house turns into a disco inferno, <laughs> Lori, Karen, and Allison make their way... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Lori, Karen, and Allison make their way out to the road and hitchhike the back of a pickup truck to the nearest hospital. <laughs> this is why you don't read them before. <laughs> it's somehow more professional that way. Oh, burn, baby, burn. <laughs> oh my god, I'm crying. Disco Inferno. <laughs> The end. <laughs> but it's not. No, it's not. Not by any means. No. Like Michael, this franchise will keep getting up. <laughs> My God. Off its corpsey ass. <laughs> My God, they'll have to stop or I'll be killed. It's like, to stop making these movies. Well, we haven't seen the next one yet. Okay. Halloween premiered at TIFF on September 8, 2018, as part of the Midnight Madness section. It was theatrically released on October 19th that same year, a week before the 40th anniversary of the original. Universal claims to have spent about $75 million in advertising for the movie. Fuck. Exclusive footage and trailers were screened at many major conventions, including San Diego Comic-Con, with Jamie Lee Curtis in attendance, where she first discussed how the film ties into the Me Too movement. Halloween would earn $75 million opening weekend, securing the number one spot in the box office and would hold that spot for another week. The North American box office would eventually climb to almost $160 million. Globally, the film would bring in $255 million against a reported Blumhouse Miramax budget of 10 to $15 million, with a marketing budget of over $75 million paid for by Universal. Wow. Someone got the shitty out of that stick. <laughs> but profits were made. Yep. Halloween 2018 holds a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 70%, and the site's consensus reads, Halloween largely wipes the slate clean after decades of disappointing sequels, ignoring increasingly elaborate mythology in favor of basic, yet still effective, ingredients. Mm, are they? Metacritic assigned the film a score of 67, indicating generally favorable reviews, and audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the movie an average grade of B+. Peter DeBrudge, 
of Variety felt that the film brings the series back to its roots, calling it an act of fan service disguised as a horror movie. The fact that it works as both means that Green has pulled off what he set out to do, tying up the mythology that Carpenter and company established while delivering plenty of fresh suspense and grisly creative kills. Leah Greenlatt at Entertainment Weekly described it as a faithful fundamental sequel. And funny, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Brian uh, Telerico of RogerEbert.com gave the movie two out of four stars, writing... It is admirable in its thematic relation to Carpenter's vision, but the no-nonsense, tightly directed aspect of the influential classic just isn't part of this one. Carpenter's movie is tautly refined that the sometimes incompetent slackness of this one is all the more frustrating, as is the complete lack of atmosphere. Oh, he didn't care for it, did he? Well, I I mostly agree with what he says here, um, although I completely disagree that it doesn't have atmosphere. It has atmosphere. It has atmosphere. Hmm. For sure. Um, the film has some accolades at the Saturn Award. It was nominated for Best Horror Film, but it lost to A Quiet Place. Okay. It won Best Actress for Jamie Lee Curtis, though. However, she was also up against um, Tony Collette from Hereditary. Well, so what about um, – what's her face from A Quiet Place? She was – I think she was in a supporting role for those awards. Really? Yeah. My God. But I mean, like Jamie Lee Curtis over Tony Collette and Hereditary. I mean, obviously they were giving her this as some sort of like legacy award or whatever. But what does Tony Collette have to do? Jesus, I, t- yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, two sequels to the film were shot concurrently after its overwhelming success, and Halloween Kills was completed and postponed due to COVID nineteen, but was released in October of twenty twenty one. Hey, that's now. Yeah. Halloween Ends is slated for an October 2022 release just next year. And uh, we may be watching Halloween Kills right after recording this episode. And we may be releasing an episode on that, too. Right? Yeah. We're just doing Halloween all through October. Next week. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Yeah, I really do think. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Halloween in October. So let's talk about a little bit of the production and how this movie came to be after so many sequels. Yeah. And it's a it's a storied history. Yeah. There's a huge amount of history of development hell for making another Halloween movie after Rob Zombie's contributions. And uh, that includes a Halloween 3D concept to kind of follow up uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. There's going to be like a 1988 sequel concept and another one that was shot down by the son of longtime Halloween producer Mustafa Akkad, Malik Akkad, now a producer himself, due to them wanting to to shoot the whole thing in Serbia. <laughs> Why? Which he thought would obviously be a, a poor fit for Haddonfield, Illinois. I mean, I can see why that would be a poor fit. <laughs> and that one was called Halloween Returns, I believe, and it stalled, obviously, and the rights reverted from Dimension Films to Miramax due to the, to the date confinements. I'm trying to think about the, the amount of time between um, Halloween 2018 and the previous installment. I would say five, ten years. Yeah, I mean, they, they they tend to pump those things out, right? But, I mean, <clears throat> not yeah. counting Rob Zombies, right? Because, like, he was doing a remake or a reboot, right? So I wouldn't really consider that part of, like, a franchise, although I guess technically it is. Yeah, well, I'm sure, you know, our friends over at Blumhouse were just, you know, chomping at the bit to get involved, and they did. Hmm? And so they rightly cornered Miramax in a dark room somewhere and ultimately <laughs> partnered to co-finance a new film that would ultimately be distributed by Universal. Wow. 
I know that they they fought long and hard to get the rights to Halloween. Well, it's their first major horror movie icon they've ever done. Blumhouse has done everything else, but they haven't done this. Yeah, right. everything has been mostly original for them, right? Yeah. yeah. And now, I mean, that this is the market that they're in now because they're also producing the next three Exorcist movies, which are also being written David and, Gordon Green. Yeah, yeah, written and directed by David Gordon Green. For, for better or worse. We'll yeah, see. We'll see. So inspired by the passion Blum uh, brought to the project, John Carpenter himself got involved and signed on to executive produce fairly early. And he said, 38 years after the original Halloween, I'm going to help to try and make the 10th sequel the scariest of them all. I talked about the Halloweens for a long time, the sequels. I haven't even seen all of them, but finally it occurred to me. Well, if I'm just flapping my gums here, why don't I just try and make it as good as I can? So, you know, stop throwing rocks from the sidelines and get in there and try and do something positive. And he did. And he did. And I can see that. I mean, you, you can tell when Carpenter's involved in Halloween movies or not, right? I mean, we talked about in the last episode my disdain for this franchise a little bit. I mean, because the sequels just get increasingly ridiculous. Yeah. And they're almost no longer fun. Like they, they create this like mythology. That's yeah. This really, really long mythology. That's just stupid, you yeah. know? And so I, when I first heard that this movie was coming out and they were going to be like bypassing all the sequels, I was totally on board for it. And then when you see Carpenter's name attached as well, I mean, I was excited. So. Yeah. And after so long too. And in fact, it kind of got me wondering why he didn't just direct himself or want to. He hasn't directed a movie in quite some time, actually. Yeah. Which kind of weirds me out because he's still composing, you yeah. know? I think he's focusing he's focusing a lot of his like work on music, right? He's he's touring the country, like performing music, he's releasing albums and things like that. Yeah. And he has said recently that he would like to direct again. Um, and I just hope that when he does, it's like the most amazing fucking movie. He probably wants yeah. to do something more original. I think he was done after, you know, Halloween too, obviously. Yeah. yeah. He moved on to other things. Yeah. Given John Carpenter's involvement and the general reverence for the original film by Bloom, David Gordon Green, and Danny McBride, the story was eventually fleshed out so that all of the sequels were ignored from the original film's continuity, and the uh, ending of the first film was actually retconned in what McBride likened to an alternative reality. He said... There's so many different versions and the timeline is so mixed up. We just thought it would be easier to go back to the source and continue from there. It was nicer than knowing that you're working on Halloween 11. It just seemed cooler. We're making Halloween too. For fans, we pay homage and respect to every Halloween that has been out there. And they do. I mean, there are some moments. Most of the call outs are from Halloween, the original, but there's a lot of moments like the kill, some of the kills and things like that, that do reflect a lot of the sequels. And there's a moment when the kids are walking down the street and he's like, didn't her brother kill her or attack her? And I'm like, okay, there's some fan service right there, you know, Mm -hmm. including the, the wish for more Paul Rudd. I mean, so say we all, but I have that in every film. So (laughs) eventually after a director misfire or two, Jason Blum reached out to David Gordon Green since he knew David actually been the Kickstarter and kind of official director attached and helming the new Suspiria film before Luca Guadagnino dropped in out of nowhere and kind of muffed it all up. Now, some people get that backwards. Um, you know, like Luca was actually hired David Gordon Green and or vice versa. And I believe it, it was actually like him trying to get it off the ground. And then Luca came in talking to Dario uh, Argento about his own ideas. And then they were going to work on it together and he was just going to produce it. And then, you know, you've got two, you know, big time creatives kind of clashing. And so David Gordon Green got kind of got the boot and left the project, and so Luca got Suspiria instead. I'm so glad that that happened. I mean, I I like the new Suspiria, and I think that Luca did a very good job. I'm not quite sure that David Green would 
have. I don't know. We'll see what he does with Exorcist. Yeah. So on Jamie Lee Curtis's casting, obviously everyone was super worried that Jamie Lee Curtis wouldn't return. So they made her a ba- as badass and interesting to play as possible. So it would be as difficult as possible for her to say no. <laughs> on her reaction to the script, she said... As soon as I read what David Green and Danny McBride had come up with and the way that they connected the dots of the story, it made so much sense to me that it felt totally appropriate for me to return to Haddonfield for a 40th anniversary retelling. It's the original story in many, many, many ways, just retold 40 years later with my granddaughter. And I see that too. And I'm sure that, I mean, like, as we discussed last week, like Jamie Lee Curtis, she made a name for herself with Halloween Mm -hmm. and really ran with that throughout her career. She had gone back to do two other Halloween movies after missing a whole bunch of them in the franchise. Mm -hmm. I don't think at this point you have to really convince Jamie Lee Curtis to come back and and play Laurie Strode again. I think she's really ready to do it. Yeah. If you, you know, throw enough money at her. Sure. I mean, dump trucks of money, Sigourney Weaver style, maybe. But I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I know that she's she, not Sigourney Weaver paycheck level yet. That's not a dump truck full of money when your budget's ten to fifteen million. I mean, I guess that's compared true. to like the biggest. You know what I mean? Like, just think about Black Widow. Uh, Scarlett Johansson was suing Disney, even though she already made fifty million from, from it. You know, Jesus Christ, which is you know five times the budget of this movie. So <laughs> it's all relative. I mean, but yeah, I mean, like, like we already said, there's lots of fan service going on in here and bringing Jamie Lee Curtis back to play this role, you know, is just another version of that, you know, and, and I, I kind of wonder if Jamie Lee Curtis have said no, would this movie have even been made? You know, I mean, like, probably not. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think that it would have actually. So yeah. they, they kind of needed her for this. Yeah, I agree. So let's start talking about the movie itself. Shall we? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it starts with those opening credits. Obviously, the pumpkin. It's it's obviously a throwback, right? Yeah. And we're going to hear a lot of that. So I might just like take that that little sound bite there and just paste it in so I don't just get winded every time I have to fucking say it. No, you should say it every time. Throwback. (laughs) (laughs) But this time we actually see the decomposed pumpkin kind of coming back to life, which I love. It's so like visually like symbolic of what we're about to watch. I mean, and I agree. So I remember seeing this in the theater for the first time, and it was not a good theater-going experience for me. People were talking all the way through it. I like the opening credits. I really like that pumpkin. I kind of, when I was watching it, I made a note. I was like, this pumpkin, like, growing back to life is sort of like the series of erections that fanboys are having in the theater when they're seeing it for the first time. You know what I mean? So and I'm sure a lot of people felt that. I mean, there's... People love the Halloween franchise. There's lots of nostalgia boners out there and seeing that kind of like iconic title sequence, you know, from the, you know, the literal ground up is, is neat. So, I mean, actually it's one of the best parts of the movie. So, so I'm kind of doing this in the order of the synopsis, right? Working through this. And so it might, there's a little cutting back and forth, but really like, I want to start with Michael in the asylum and the stupid podcasters (laughs) because it's just like another throwback, right? Like, it's so reverent like this. We're starting to get so reverent with this stuff. And remember, we're going back in time as a sequel to the first movie. Nothing else has happened. It was only that one night. Laurie Strode only had moments with Michael and that's it. Right. Yep. It's not based on anything else. So we're going to like the problems I have with this movie have to do with like self-seriousness, self-reverential you know, qualities. And um, it's going to be a continuing theme, obviously. I mean, <laughs> So I know that people make podcasts 
about true crime, right? I listen to them all the time. And sometimes it's an entire like series of a show Mm -hmm. just based on one crime. So, I mean, I don't think it's so far fetched. No, I don't have a problem with the podcasters. I think that's a good in. Uh, and I think it's updated. Um, but the mask, you know, like the the presuming this has any meaning for for Michael. Like he went into that store, got a couple of knives and some rope and a random mask, right? It there wasn't special to him. If you were trying to say there was like some sort of special mask, you know, it'd be maybe the clown mask that he wore as a little boy, you know? Oh, yeah. It's not I mean, about that. I mean, we don't know how he felt in that store when he was ransacking it. It could have called to him, the <laughs> siren or whatever. But I mean, for these podcasters to like, the stand evil up- has nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> He has a boner of his own for that mask. Uh, But yeah, the podcaster like pulls it out and is holding it to his back and he's like screaming at him. And I was just like, okay, (laughs) come on, you stupid horse or whatever, you know, and like, (laughs) I was just like, okay, this has gone on for long enough. And I, I mean, like I, he was trying to get a response, right? The whole time is all he wanted. He was trying to give us some sort of epic reveal of Michael. And, you know, maybe on my first watch of this, it was like more effective because it's been so long. But this time around, I was just like, it's just a guy. I mean, like, and he's, you know, it's just a fucking mask. Like, ask him like some, maybe some harder hitting questions than look at those masks. I mean, they're investigative journalists. Right, and what they call themselves in that movie. Yeah, you know, the whole time I was watching it this time around, I was just like, I wonder if we can go out into the wild and just call ourselves investigative journalists, right? I mean, if we have like three thousand dollars to throw around, we can just do whatever we want to with this podcast. Apparently, we can go find someone in the asylum with a mask and just scream Michael at them. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, the Lorries aren't all right. Well, the Strodes, I guess. (laughs) We got Lori, Karen, and Allison intros, right? So we're kind of introduced to Lori and where she's at now and her daughter, Karen, and her daughter, Allison, you know, with the three generations here and kind of what they went through a little bit with the daughters not so happy with the mother. And I don't want to get too much into that because it's just kind of a little bit more of like a plot device to like just validate Lori Strode even more. Yeah. You know, but to me, this goes back to also, like, why is she still in Haddonfield? And mm-hmm. for that one night, we're not dealing with any of the sequels here. Like, all of that is, like, non-diegetic. That's not in this world. It's alternative history, right? Why is she still holding a grudge? Why is she still even thinking about it? It's been 40 years. She's still in Haddonfield. I mean, she kind of hangs a lantern on it later in the movie when she says, I've prayed for him to escape every day so I can kill him. And, yes, he did kill her friends, you know. But I, I, it's, I still, I, it's not there for me. I, I wanted like a better reason. Like maybe she had moved away and then moved back. I feel I like know. you need to reach a little bit to find a reason. <laughs> so I'm going to do it right now. Um, she has a daughter, obviously, who was taken away from her at a very young age, right? She clearly loves her daughter. She's training her to survive. And she may not have wanted to leave Haddonfield, so at least to be sort of close to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that's too far of a reach. And then especially when she has a granddaughter, she's not going to go anywhere. But, I mean, she stays in a town that has a lot of trauma for her. But, I mean, she lives in a kick-ass fortress. So, I mean, like, she's done her due diligence. But, I mean, I, th- I think there's some reasons why she might have stayed. Yeah, I would have liked to know what she did for a living. You know, like how she got that money and uh, to do that, to buy all that land and everything else. She was on podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, We cut back to the bus and, uh, you know, the bus had crashed and we see the milling and, you know, inmates, you know, in their white shirts at night going around and like, okay, that's direct throwback. Good. Throwback. I liked it. I like seeing that. You know, he's got to escape somehow. Mm -hmm. Might as well make it, you know, reminiscent, you know, repeating history, things like that. 
Um, would you, you have rather kill his first child? Oh, that's also. right. Yeah. And that was, I mean, I like that kid though. I mean, I like that part in the movie. He was like, dancing is my thing. You're interrupting my dance time or whatever. And I didn't want him to die. And he like snaps his fucking neck. Yeah. I think that was in reference actually to Suspiria, like a small thing. Like there was a, maybe an, another deleted scene, like saying he was going to go off to some like dance troupe or whatever. <sighs> big, big dance. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> callback always a good reference um would you have rather have seen michael making the bus crash um there was supposed to be a reveal and i've seen this movie twice and i still didn't understand until like reading the synopsis that dr satan or whatever was the one that like made it happen i didn't realize that until i was reading the synopsis just now yeah it was apparently it was eluded and we just like just flew right over our heads or maybe that's just in the synopsis i don't know obviously we take a small synopsis and we edit it and, and yeah. you know put our own stink on it and fill it out and put it in the proper order sometimes but that was in there and i just figured it was right but you know, because something had to happen. Obviously, I, I I really assumed it was Michael that you know took I mean, advantage I did of too. The I mean, I'm, I assumed that he'd be shackled. You know, yeah. I always thought the doctor just took advantage of the opportunity after. You know that he was traumatized, maybe even concussed. I don't even know that it's that much of a talking point, really. No, I mean, like <laughs> what what the doctor does later on is a little bit more important. But yeah, I mean, like that's a. I think that's a good scene. I I also throw back. <laughs> I also like seeing the, the inmates like milling about. Right. And um, I mean, Michael gets pretty brutal in this movie. And this is like one of the first things we get to see. Well, he beelines it to his sister's grave as one does. That's right. He doesn't pull it out of the ground this time. Thank fucking God. <laughs> I saw that on a bed. I was going to walk out of the theater. <laughs> That's my personal issue, though. I don't expect anyone else to have that. I like the look on that like uh, gravekeeper's face when they sit down and start recording the podcast and are so very serious about it. And she's mm-hmm. like rolling her eyes in the background they're like when he was six he brutally stabbed judith myers or whatever and she's like okay what the yeah, fuck's going on he's doing his thing <laughs> yeah but uh then of course he sees the podcasters there at the graveyard because you know whatever and uh follows them inexplicably and you know has to go get his onesie from the garage there and he has to get his mask because who you know who the fuck knows why because nostalgia because non-diegetic nostalgia you know, and goes after them. And then he does this weird thing, which is usually Michael's very kind of like, he's the shape. He's kind of straight line. He's very stage directions. Like we mentioned in the last one, yeah. you know, pseudo supernatural and just is a very task oriented. But this time he kind of plays with the victim a little bit. We've never really seen that before, at least in the original, where he kind of lifts his arm over the stall in the bathroom while she's taken a number two and drops the teeth. <laughs> yeah. He's never done that before. Is he that much of a showman in some of the sequels? Like, is that another throwback that I'm not aware of? Yeah. I mean, like he, like I said, they get increasingly stupid and he does showman type things. You know, I will say even in the, in the original, he, he plays with at least one of the victims by putting that ghost costume on in the glasses, you know? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, he'll, he, it's, that's more of like, um, you know, it's task oriented versus the, the teeth thing is. Yeah, I mean, that seemed like it came it's out. more like I'm trying to nowhere. scare you. Exactly. Like, she's you. taking a shit. Here's some teeth on the ground. I feel like Michael Myers doesn't give a shit if you're scared. No. You know? He just wants you dead. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of rough to, like, die taking a shit, too. I, I really hated that part of the movie because she just, like, gets scared and pulls her pants up. I mean, I feel like I would have taken the time to wipe. And you could argue that he goes back out to the car and gets his mask because he knows it's there, not because it's important to him. That's so true. He wants a mask, you know, but it's like, why is it so important 
you know, I feel like if like a Fincher had directed this, it would have been a little bit more grounded, maybe a lot more grounded. And he would have worn anything that he could get his hands on. Any mask he could have got. He would have had like pantyhose and a DuckTales t-shirt. I don't fucking know. <laughs> Son, you got a panty on your head. Um, well, I mean, we you have to have some fan service, right? It's the icon. And, and, and yeah, Michael Mars has always worn that mask. And if you want to like erase all the sequels, you, you cannot erase the mask. Yeah, I, I know. It's just something about it bothers me for trying to be such like a reverential, like self-serious movie in parts. To have so much fan service just because of the audience worship of an icon, not because of his own reasoning. It just seems kind of disjointed a little bit, but I'm also kind of missing the point of a franchise. Well, and that, I mean, and like it does, you have to like suspend disbelief a little bit too. I mean, and and maybe create connections in your own head. Although... If we have to, if we have to create connections in our own head, that means that it's a really lazy fucking screenplay. You know what I mean? Well, like, I get both sides of it. Speaking of which, you know, when when she sees him on the bus, you know, before this crash or whatever, she's like, "I saw the, I saw him, I saw the shape." Oh, like, yeah. that is a non-diegetic name. <laughs> Don't do that. Stop it. <laughs> Throwback. Total fan service in that moment. Is this when the, the at dinner right? Where she's like freaking out or whatever with her family. Someone somewhere, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I, I wrote that in my notes too. I was like, oh, you saw it? You she saw the podcast. shape, did you? <laughs> <laughs> huh? But yeah, I mean, like other people in the world saw this movie aside from people who are obsessed with Halloween. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm not a fanatic by any means. I've seen the movies, but I'm not dying for another Halloween movie, mm-hmm. you know? And so when she says, I saw the shape, I get the reference. You know what I mean? I'm a horror fan. Yeah. But she knows his name. Yeah, she does. And then, but a lot of other people, a lot of lay people don't know that he was ever called the shape. You know what I mean? Most so people don't include it really. Yeah. I, that really bothered me. Even the first time I saw it, I was like, what are you talking about? Anyway. I didn't even hear it the first time I saw it because there were so many people talking around me. It's like, you are not a real person. You are just the audience. I'm like, what, what is going on here? But anyway, um, you know, we, we move on and Michael starts killing, right? More. <laughs> and we get the, the first babysitter murder, right? And uh, I like that kid. And oh, he, that kid's he awesome. He does live, yeah. But the babysitter's murder in the closet is probably my favorite murder of the entire movie. The whole closet moment where she tries to close it and she can't close mm-hmm. it. And then she opens it and Michael's just right the fuck there. Yeah. And like pops right out. Yeah. Such a good moment. I mean, she's a good character. <clears throat> I really liked her a Me lot. Too. I, 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 I'm sad that she died. Like I would rather have seen a lot more of her in this movie because honestly, out of all the characters, like she was probably one of my favorite. And this includes all the main characters. You know what I mean? Yeah. She was likable. She was very Laurie Strode. Like she cared about that kid, but she also wanted to get laid. You know what I mean? She's a combination of like all these other characters. She's a little bit more multifaceted version of like the PJ Souls. You know? Yeah. Like, but a much more grounded version like that I kind of wanted in the first. Virginia Gardner is her name. Yeah. Yeah. She was excellent. So then, of course, they get word that there's been a murder, blah, blah, blah. And both the police and uh, Laurie Strode show up. And there's that reverse shot of, you know, like, remember in the first movie, she's up in the window looking down at Michael and it's reversed now. She's looking up at the window and it's those more subtle callbacks that I love. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I just throw away all the rest of the shit. That's just way too obvious and in your face. I like the people milling about kind of borderline for me, you know, but but this like the reverse shots. That's what I really love. And it really works well. And she shoots him and it turns out it's a reflection in the mirror through the window. 
which is also a nice touch. Yes, I also liked that. And I agree with you. I think like some of the the bigger points of fan service in this movie are gross to me. And I'm like, it, it kind of unnecessary. But things like that, like the very subtle things, like you said, to your point, are like perfect. You know what I mean? There's, it's like they're creating an inverse of the first film you know what i mean yeah. and like have a, a yin and yang sort a reverse of reverse mirror image and if we were yeah. just abusive with our analyzation powers we could say well her uh obsessive compelling nature of going after michael myers is really just hurting herself by shooting that mirror <laughs> <laughs> what <do you> mean? <laughs> maybe you should just be a shrink i mean i'll lay on your couch for a little bit we'll just see we'll see what we come up with i like that though i mean like I'm okay with like a gross overanalyzation of things. So, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I like that moment in the movie. I also like throwback <laughs> a moment before that where he's sort of like going from house to house, like killing people. You yeah. know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. he watching the first Halloween from 1978, you feel like he's sort of like fixated on a group, right? And um, this is 2018, 40 years later, obviously. And, you know, audiences are expecting a little bit more and they ramp up the violence by showing how crazy he really is, like grabbing a hammer and just like beating someone to death. You know, one thing that bothers me about the trailer for this new one is that they're like, well, if you look at the map of murders, you know, he's been going straight towards his old house. And I'm like, no, that's not true. Cause he was at fucking Lori's. He was like going down the street. All of a sudden he's out in the fucking boonies in the country at Lori's house. And that's it. No, no such beeline exists. Shut up. Well, we haven't seen the movie yet. So just wait. <laughs> this movie happened. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I don't know. I was just thinking of the, the, the murders so far. But, but anyway. After this, we get into the movie's twist. Uh, it's a stupid twist. I fucking hate it. It's the worst part of this whole fucking movie to me. Is Dr. Satan's twist. I don't understand. I know. I'm like, why? Why are you? Why does this character exist? Why, why can't we just leave him behind at the asylum? We don't need the subplot. It just fucks everything up. Well, I mean, they had to have a Loomis. It just was so eye-rolling to me. It was so needless. And the the motivation for that was so unprofessional and so anti-anything anyone in reality would ever do. It's just, it would just pulled me out. I mean, when he put the mask on and was standing outside the car, I mean, I literally rolled my eyes. I was just like, okay like <sighs> stupid killing the cop like all that stuff like yeah wow i mean and, and i don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it because it really is just stupid you know it just it makes zero sense to me like i understand that loomis was also very and it's obsessed. also just super inconsequential like it doesn't even matter that it's in the movie it could have been cut yeah i mean because the doctor dies yeah. So I mean he doesn't he doesn't accomplish anything by doing this. Yeah. It's just they they wanted something shocking, right? Or again, I guess maybe they wanted the inverse of Loomis, right? Yeah. Like Loomis was so obsessed about keeping Michael in prison that we have the other doctor who's so obsessed with keeping him out. They you should know? have foreshadowed that a little bit more, maybe the maybe at the uh, asylum, you know. Yeah. And, you know, something like that. But and maybe they did a little bit, but it was too subtle. You know, something to kind of give us a little bit of more of a, like, it was just such a weird out of character. Like, this character's doing this now, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Because reasons. I don't, you know, his motivation wasn't there for me. And, I mean, I feel like I've already been reaching too much to explain everything about this movie. So I'm just not going to do that. Yeah. And, <laughs> You know, we both like this movie, so we're not trying to shit on it. But yeah, no, problems. I there's mean, problems here. It's it's an enjoyable movie, but you're right. Yeah. So then we get the big, you know, finale, right? The showdown at Lori's place. 
where we have, you know, a big house full of traps with lights and everything else and stupid fucking mannequins. When Lori is going after him and she goes in that room where she's she owns this house, she has put these fucking mannequins in this room. I'm like, you've done this to yourself, bitch. Well, what are you doing? Whenever Allison is running through the forest, right, and she stumbles upon, like, the mannequin shooting gallery and she's freaked out, yeah. I'm like, yes, yes, your grandmother's trauma is traumatizing you. I mean, Her like, trauma? <laughs> your trauma. I was like, it's frightening. So, yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah, but it even frightens Lori. I mean, she goes, oh, whatever. Okay, whatever. It's just meant for, like, set. I'm like, it doesn't make sense for Lori's setting, right? She built this whole fucking yeah. house to essentially trap him. And yet, like, what? Is this to, to give him a false sense of security? Like, she's scared by them, too. Like, she's like, is he behind that one? Is he behind that one? And yes, he was. And every single closet door in her house is that folding kind? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, does it even make sense that Lori would have a closet like that in her home? And she's the one that's breaking through them. So I get it. Throwback. But, I mean... <laughs> And somehow Michael, like, decided to get her her stepson's body all the way up the stairs and into that closet just so that we could have a throwback. I know. You know, for the the, the body find. You body know? discovery moment. Yeah, I don't know. And then, you know, we have that balcony reverse shot, which is the best shot in the fucking movie to me. It's so good. It's such an empowering moment where Michael thinks he's killed her and she hits the ground, just like in the first movie when he hit the ground. And he looks back after hearing a noise and she's gone. Mm-hmm. And we get a riff, you know, and it's great. It's just a good moment. I love that. I get chills just like thinking about it. I mean, I agree. Like we talked about earlier, like the, the, the subtle fan moments, right, mm-hmm. are excellent. And the thing is, is that well, there's I'm, a huge so what to that. There's a huge so what. And I love it. And I'm not sure that a lot of people have seen the original enough to like notice something like that. Or maybe they forgot. I don't know. Oh, but. That's a key moment when the when the body's not there. I mean, for uh-huh. us, for sure. You know what I mean? But when I saw it for the first time in the theater, of I expected... Of course, they retconned that, so it doesn't make sense in this movie. But oh, don't that's think right. about it too hard. <laughs> oh, my God. I was about to, like, really go into it, but you just reminded me that that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> as far as this movie's concerned. You know what? <laughs> well, maybe he was gone because he marched directly into the back of a police car. We don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm starting to reconsider my rating on this movie already. We haven't gotten to that question yet. <laughs> Well, then uh, Karen's inner Karen takes over. <laughs> it's a twist. Was oh it believable? God. No. No. I love that moment, though, when she's like, pretending to be scared and then all of a sudden she's like, gotcha. Yeah, it you is know, good. shoots him. And there was a callback to that, too, with a flashback when she was a little girl learning how to use the gun. You can hear her say, gotcha, off screen. Oh, I didn't or whatever. That. Yeah. And so, but the problem with that is she's extremely scared right around her mother when they're alone. Right? So it's just a twist for the sake of the audience and not in the story itself. So it doesn't really make that much sense. No. I mean, I get it. I mean, I do like that part, though. You I mean, just don't think about this movie too much, really. I mean, honestly, maybe I just like that part of the movie because, you know, when that happens, you know it's almost over. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, <I> mean, <laughs> Jesus. Okay. I feel like I like this movie more, but you rated it higher. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into it. Okay. I don't know. I mean, we're going to see where my where I put my emotions. And then another throwback with uh, Laurie emerging from the shadows behind Michael. Mm-hmm. And a nice little reveal, yeah. Of course, it's not as iconic because she doesn't have like the white mask face, you know? She got that white frizzy hair and it is kind of iconic when she steps out of the darkness, though. Because it's like, it's just like a, a floating like Jamie Lee Curtis head. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I like it. And they do do one more, right? They they trap him. They set the the fire, you know, and so the house is like a disco inferno. 
And then the, as they're kind of driving away or at some point in there, as they're, they're getting to the road or whatever, they kind of pan back inside the house where it's burning and you don't see Michael. So it's trying to do another throwback to, <laughs> you know, his body missing. Right. Right. But of course we know he's still in there by the sequel trailer. That's right. We know, have seen those firemen. Which we're watching tonight. Yes. On and the, the cockpit, whatever it is. <laughs> the cockpit. <laughs> NBC will never sponsor our podcast now. <laughs> Peacock. Whatever. And by God, I'm excited to watch it. You know what I mean? Like, I honestly, just based on the trailers, feel like I will like the sequel better than this one. But time will tell. We shall see. Hours will tell. We'll be excited to see it reg- regardless. Regardless. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. A lot of throwbacks, um, you know, but there's there's some themes. Obviously, the major theme in this is PTSD and trauma. Yeah. So there's lots of trauma going on in this mm-hmm. and its effects on the person. Right. So, I mean, Laurie Strode is clearly an alcoholic and in this movie. Clearly traumatized. Clearly traumatized. So she walked in and drank someone else's wine in the middle of a restaurant. <laughs> Standing up. <laughs> <laughs> like downing it. She's yeah. like, OK, OK, I'll sit down. And I'm like, like she's got some issues, right? Yeah. And clearly her family does too, um, which I can see. I think that's believable. You know what I mean? I, I really like that they would take a movie like this and, and sort of focus on the trauma that somebody would go through in a slasher movie. But it's also right? about intergenerational trauma right? yeah. and the trauma that she passed on to her daughter and they're really her granddaughter as well in mm-hmm. a way. And it's about that legacy and the passing of the uh, the torture. Yeah. The torture. <laughs> oh my God. I see what you did. Passing there. the torture. <laughs> the children are our future and they aren't all right. <laughs> Teach them well and help them see the way. Um, yeah. I just, I also like that part of it too. I feel like the first time we watched this movie, those are the two things that we talked about, right. Was the generational aspect of it and the PTSD of it all. Right. But I feel like we've seen other movies recently that do this generational type of like horror better, namely like relic, right. That Australian movie from, yeah. yeah. Well, that was about, you know, something else entirely. But I mean, just like, I feel like, I feel like those characters were better. I feel like the story was better. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was really, that's really about Alzheimer's, you know, it's about dementia and and things like that. And it's, it's a metaphor for all of that. And, and it's kind of lumped in with those other movies like that, kind of like Babadook or Hereditary, you know, they're kind of message movies about something else, you know, in the kind of a Spielbergian kind of horror fashion. Right. But uh, this one's much more straightforward. It's not as stripped down as it should be. And obviously, this reverence cup spilleth over. <laughs> Our cup is full. It is like that cup of blood in Dracula that just fills up the room. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like someone stabbed across and references just poured out everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm okay with a lot of it too. I know we just sat there and like badmouth some of the throwbacks or whatever, but I mean, as as a horror fanboy, like you know, I kind of relish in some of those moments. If it's too on the nose, if it's yeah. not challenging enough, if it's not like a wink and a nod versus a "Hey, over here, look at me, I'm a big football blimp." I don't fucking know, you know. I mean, yeah. I I chuckled when they were walking down the street talking about whether or not it was her brother. I mean, it's moments like that that I appreciate, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, mostly watching it this time it was kind of eye rolling and i'm like we don't need that you know like and maybe because we watched halloween and deep dove it so soon you know before watching it you know directly and i feel like i watched halloween 1978 like days before i saw this one in the theater even you know and so like i I was ready with those comparisons like they were they were still kind of fresh and i mean i remember halloween anyway I, i i don't need a refresher to get some of those you know throwbacks but i mean it's a lot. 
And I don't think the movie really needed it. They were going to make a lot of money regardless, you know, having Jamie Lee Curtis in a Halloween, it could have been the actual 11th sequel and not retconned anything. And they still would have made a gobbledygillion gillion dollars. Yeah. You know, so I mean, fan service is great. And I appreciate when people sort of pander to my boner, my nostalgia boner, but they don't have to do it all the time. No. You know, I like it. I like a little subtle. I like it just like the just the the, the edge, the yeah, rim. That's right. Know? That's right. So like keep your reference as foreplay around my boner. It's not the main course. Tickle the pickle. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> Repickle it. I don't know. I'm really fucking digging this analogy, though. I mean, do <laughs> uh, you have anything else to say about its themes? No, but I do have some fun facts. Oh, good. Just a couple. Okay. Yeah. What are they? So, the song that's playing when the boy and his dad notice the bus crash is a Western version of the song that Laurie sings throughout the original movie, which was actually made up by Jamie Lee Curtis. And the song can also be heard during the end credits. Really? Yes. I don't remember her singing that song in the original, but I guess I kind of yeah, do. She made it up. He's like, I need you singing a song while you're walking down the street. She oh, made yeah, you yeah. make it up. And mm-hmm. she sings it later, too. So, and also at uh, the 59 minute and 36 second mark, a trio of children can be seen together wearing a skeleton mask, witch mask, and jack-o'-lantern mask. They are nearly identical to the masks in Halloween 3 season of The Witch. And we actually saw those in the new trailer for Halloween Kills as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in which, obviously, the, the Silver Shamrocks company masks are driving the driving plot device. When I first saw this movie in the theater and I saw those masks, <laughs> you know for a fact that I really shit my pants. I was so excited. Yeah. I love I'm Halloween sure. 3. Yeah. So obviously the dollhouse at Laurie Strode's is fairly identical to the house uh, that Michael Myers grew up in. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah, the first time. Yeah. So this is like one of the, the most obvious fun facts I've ever had. But um, my for my final one, Jamie Lee Curtis revealed to Chris Hardwick on his podcast that she performed the sounds of a ba- of the baby crying when Michael Myers walks through the house after slaughtering the resident with a hammer and grabbing a butcher's knife from the kitchen. That's fucking amazing. I mean, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I hope so. Knowing her, she's a little, you know, tongue in cheek sometimes. So, and I, I remember feeling this way when I saw it the first time and this time too, I was like, is he going to kill that fucking baby? You know what I mean? And then he doesn't. And then I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, I mean, go hardcore. He just like, beat someone over the head with a hammer oh, and God it just got me flashbacks to the just the pilot episode of Battlestar Galactica the new the reimagined one uh-huh. like the first death in that whole series is like the Cylon you know knowing nuclear war is coming or whatever you don't know that yet right and she reaches into the crib and you hear a crack <laughs> oh my god I forgot all about that yeah I need to rewatch that show so good well, those were fun, um, but we have some questions to ask about Halloween 2018, just like we did about Halloween 1978. And we're, again, going to skip the first question because clearly it's a horror movie. Mm. Were you scared while watching this Halloween? Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just mentally going through the movie. Uh... <laughs> I'm going to take that as a resounding no. I mean, creeped out a, a little bit, maybe? Yeah. Like there's some tension. Yeah. Maybe a little bit. I mean, there is some tension, you know, and I, you know, I had the benefit of having like half a gummy while I was watching it. So maybe I was a little bit more, you know, yeah. tense than, than otherwise, but I, I don't think it's that scary, you know? And like, 
they don't hang on to it as long as the first one does. I don't think like they, they just move on to the next scare, the yeah. next moment, you know? I mean, that reviewer is right. That it's not, it's not as tautly directed. Mm. And I think that, you know, John Carpenter really built up a lot of tension. Like I said, in the last episode, I get scared every time I watch the original Halloween, it's effective. Yeah. And this movie is just not in a well, scary kind of way. Of being scared. And then I hear throwback in the middle of my <laughs> <head>. <laughs> I mean, like, I know the dollhouse. I'm like, oh, look at that. That's the thing. If if you're going to be violent, you know what I mean? Like ramp up the violence. If you're not going to be violent, then you better be a really fucking scary, scary movie as far as I'm concerned. You know what I mean? And this one has its toes on both those lines. And I wish they would have just chosen one line or the other. Well, there's one thing that actually grosses me out and kind of scares me from the trailer, the upcoming one that we're going to watch tonight. The fucking light bulb. The fucking light bulb. Oh my God. I know. I'm so excited for it. God. I don't know what that says about me. I know. I don't know what it says about me as a person person i'm like yes i'm so ready for that moment in this movie <laughs> i'm super looking forward to halloween kills because it looks violent as fuck and i'm here for it yeah. but out of five stars what would you rate halloween 2018 you know i think when i originally saw it i gave it a four star um you know but this time i gave it a three i lowered it it's a high three but i really struggled with that i my, my rating stayed the same Right. I gave it three and a half stars when I watched it the first time. I gave it three and a half stars this time. But having this conversation with you right now, organically, I feel like three is a better rating. You know what I mean? But there's some there's some really good parts to this movie and good performances. It's it's well made. Yeah, it's not always three is enjoyable. Yeah. So I mean I I three and a half stars I think is good. I would never go higher than that though. Okay. So yeah. All right. So finally, who's the hottest guy in Halloween twenty eighteen? Let me look at the fucking cast again. Jesus. The answer is no one. <laughs> I mean, can we all agree that all these teenagers, well, at least the teenage boys in this movie are homely I, as fuck. I didn't, I didn't ever think of a guy in this, this movie like sexually at all, which is fine for me. But I mean, I, I can't really answer that question because I can't think of anyone. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I mean Michael's kind of built, you know, I guess maybe the podcaster guy, mm, no. he's kind of douchey. Yeah. I see a little douchey. I mean, and the, 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 not the sheriff, but like the deputy. I mean, I like that actor a lot. He's like my favorite audiobook actor. And I mean, I just, you like it better when you don't see him. Yeah, maybe. I like his voice. I don't know. I'm going to go with the podcast guy, even though that's like, you know, a, a cop out answer. There's just nobody, there's no really attractive guys in this movie. I'm sorry. No, they're all a little like, emo or whiny or something i don't know i mean it really makes me wish for the 90s when everybody in middle america was hot maybe this movie has something to say about masculinity in and of itself i don't know oh my god i mean we should have brought that up as a theme (laughs) i mean it kind of does because the women save the day right well sure and the guy gets fucking like and of course the only male man in that family gets killed it's true and like quickly yeah so strangled Mm -hmm. Because he spent so much time talking about having peanut butter on his penis or whatever he said. What the fuck was that about? I know. I it was, was so random. And the daughter's right there. She's like, shut up, dad. I'm like, what kind of conversation is this? This is like right up there with like a weird funhouse. Maybe that's what it is. A weird, weird funhouse mirror of the family dynamic from Rob Zombie's Halloween. I mean, I think they're just trying real, real hard to be funny. Just penis I know. It's just stupid. So uh, we want to know what you think about Halloween 2018, and you can tell us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline 
at 1-972-666-7733. Show us your shape. Whoa. <laughs> I'm getting good at this. <laughs> Uh, if you can't get enough of the Film Flamers, and we know you can't, head over to patreon.com slash the Film Flamers to find all of our bonus content, including this month's episode. As voted by our patrons, we're going to be talking about and flashing back to throwback Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And we really want your thoughts on all of this franchise, including the new one if you've seen it. So do please call that hotline and don't forget your peanut butter. <laughs> like Chris mentioned earlier, next week we're going to have a hot take episode on Halloween Kills. We're about to sign off and go watch it. That's right. Well, you think we should do that? Go watch Halloween Kills and then have some sweet dreams. It's the shape. <laughs> I saw him. I saw the shape. And it had peanut butter on it. <laughs> he had peanut butter on his penis. Give me that glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I could have wrote a better movie. <laughs> <laughs>